we have entered into an amusing ourselves to death moment in history. It doesn't make sense to me. If there is God, God's supposed to be free. I was 100% sure that I was sacrificing on the altar of truth my only chance for happiness in this world. Miracles don't necessarily change anybody's mind. It just gets their attention. And so I had to run with my child on my back, the ESA army coming behind us. I said, gee, Uncle George, this is luxurious for a communist. <laughs> Sonny said nothing's too good for the worker, nothing. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. Well, last week we looked at the way political tribalism is playing out in the US election and the role of faith in both stoking division and creating possibilities for a way through, or at least we can dream. Now, this week, we continue exploring the way that religion gets politicized. And you don't have to look too far to see this. Lots of people have made mention of the riot police using tear gas to clear crowds protesting George Floyd's death so that President Trump could hold up a Bible in front of St. John's Episcopal Church. We also know that 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump in the 2016 election. Now, obviously, for this group in particular, he is an unlikely pick for president. He's someone who cheated on his wife and paid off porn stars. And in 2019, Christianity Today, America's flagship evangelical magazine, featured a highly critical editorial describing Donald Trump as of grossly immoral character. Now, even so, there's lots of reasons why evangelicals have explained their vote for Donald Trump. They have real concerns about religious liberty, they're pro-life, and they want conservative justices appointed to the Supreme Court to represent those interests. Now, these concerns haven't changed in the last four years. Well, over the last 30 years, really. And maybe that's why, as Pew Research reported in July, 80% of white evangelicals still planned to vote for Donald Trump in November. Lord, I thank you that America didn't need a preacher in the Oval Office. It did not need a professional politician in the Oval Office, but it needed a fighter and a champion for freedom. And Lord, that's exactly what we have. That's a few lines from a prayer huddle surrounding President Trump at an Evangelicals for Trump event held at a Miami megachurch in January. Now, as we mentioned last week, it's a relatively new phenomenon that evangelical Christians have been so partisan in their politics. And it's a complicated historical story that you can't easily sum up in a soundbite. But obviously, one key part of that story is white evangelicals. Now, we're going to get to the white part of the equation later. But first, when we say evangelical, what do we even mean? And just so you know, we're spending time on this particular point because even the experts differ on what this designation means. Historically, when we talk about evangelicalism, we're talking about a particular movement within Christianity This is Amy Black, professor of political science at Wheaton College in Illinois. Typically theologically conservative Christians. Uh, There are lots of kind of different definitions, but a definition that many people use comes from um, British historian David Bebbington, and he says there are kind of four pieces to it. Evangelicals would talk about the need for conversion. They would talk about the importance of scripture and sort of reading the Bible as, as sort of truthful for their lives and not just kind of a moral concept. Also talks about the centrality of Christ and his death on the cross. And then the term evangelism, that call to evangelize, it's called to tell others and share the news of um, 
of what God has done. So that's kind of our classic definition. And all of those are really talking about theological commitments, what people believe. But then here's the problem. If you are a pollster and you want to know how religion interacts with politics, let's say in the United States, and you know you have a lot of these evangelicals out there, how do you figure out who's an evangelical? You don't have time to ask all of those questions, and you might not even understand the theology behind all those questions, so you look for a shortcut. So a lot of the major polls in the United States ask a simple question, would you describe yourself as an evangelical? And if someone says yes, guess what? They're in the box. They are now an evangelical. And so when asking someone to self-identify with a label, for some people, they're answering that question, yes, in fact, I'm an evangelical, according to the David Bebbington definition. But most people are saying, yeah, that, that counts. Some people are saying, I'm a Christian, because a lot of these political surveys don't ask any other religion questions. It's the first opportunity they've even been able to say that they're connected to Christianity. And for some people, it's a cultural label that means something to them that really has nothing to do with these, the these theological commitments. So I think it's become a really confused mess. So we talk about evangelicals and politics, exactly who we're talking about, we don't even really know all the time. So that's from a political scientist, so you got to know it's bad. Now, on evangelical as a cultural label, as opposed to church-going evangelicals, Here's what Andy Crouch, author, speaker, and former editor of Christianity Today, had to say. Generally, evangelical is thought of as referring to people who are highly observant of their religion. But here in America, for various reasons, in the past generation, we have this phenomenon that are, there are a lot of people who still identify with that world and that kind of set of cultural practices. But they themselves really are not churchgoers necessarily. And they're actually the most enthusiastic about Donald Trump because they still perhaps share some of the cultural values that he's willing to fight for, but they also really like his sort of aggressive style. And the people who are more churchgoers tend to be really distant from his style, his personal style, and are making the decision based more on just a calculation of uh, who in office is going to make room for people like me. On that point, let me take you back to 2016 to a Trump rally at a Christian college in Sioux Center, Iowa where Donald Trump infamously said this. And you know what else they say about my people? The polls. They say, I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. <laughs> no, they say, Trump, we love you too, man. Trump's voters are by- That was the line that made media headlines anyway. A rhetorical flourish? Well, either way, during that speech, Donald Trump also made a naked appeal to the gathered Christians. He described Christianity as under tremendous siege, and that though Christians made up the overwhelming majority of the country, we, this is Donald Trump speaking, don't exert the power that we should have. But if he became president, he said, quote, Christianity will have power. If I'm there, you're going to have plenty of power. You don't need anybody else. You're going to have someone representing you very, very well. Remember that. Kristen Cabestumay is professor of history at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the author of Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Kristen is also an alumni of Dort University, where Trump made this speech. And while she wasn't there for the rally, she describes for us what it was like to watch it unfold later. I was watching, I was watching before the event even started as 
as you know, the, the uh, auditorium was filling up, uh, I always called it the chapel. That's where we had our chapel events and just kind of watching people fill in. And, and the space was just so familiar. And, and then when Robert Jeffress took the stage, so one of Trump's very early evangelical supporters, and I think this may have been the first, if not one of the very first um, appearances that he made with Trump himself. And, and he was the pastor. He offered the opening prayer. And right then I thought, he does not know where he is, right? The people in this space are not going to go for that kind of Christian nationalism, that militancy. And, and then I heard, you know, the crowd, they were going for it. They were cheering him on. They were, you know, and this was also one of the first times I had heard a, an entire Trump speech. Up until then, I'd heard little snippets in the media. And, and I kind of thought, you know, oh, they're probably going for the most extreme sound bites. And I'm sure you place it in context. It's probably not so bad. And I had the opposite uh, conclusion after listening to, you know, an hour long a speech. I thought this is um, this is incredibly disturbing, and it was incredibly disturbing to me that he was saying those things at my alma mater, and that he was doing so to to so much applause, and and that's when I realized that I needed to kind of understand things in a different way and and get a sense for what was happening. It's worth pointing out that when Kristen says evangelical, as she described Robert Jeffress, an American Southern Baptist pastor and one of Donald Trump's staunchest allies, she's not meaning necessarily the classic Bebbington definition. And so I look at evangelicalism as a historical and cultural movement. And uh, ultimately, I've come to see that evangelicalism is more than just a set of beliefs, uh, but it is a, a consumer culture. That evangelicals uh, back in the 1940s and since then really... Um, uh, were very explicit about wanting to spread their faith, to evangelize the nation through uh, popular media, through the mass media, through radio, and then later through television and through magazines and through publishing and Christian bookstores. And so that's the reach that I'm interested in. Who are the Christians who were, whose faith was formed through that evangelical popular culture, as well as through the preaching in evangelical churches? And this is where, perhaps surprisingly, John Wayne, iconic Hollywood cowboy, rides in as a figure of not just rugged American masculinity, but evangelical manhood. Full disclosure, I did not set out to write a book about John Wayne, and I still kind of can't believe that I did. And, and you know, the book isn't really about John Wayne. But what was so surprising to me is when I first started looking into evangelical writings on Christian manhood, and I, I first kind of pay, started paying attention to this in the early 2000s. And what really surprised me is that for all their talk about uh, being Bible-believing evangelicals, uh, Bible-believing Christians, when I read these books, there weren't a lot of Bible verses in, in them. And there, there, there wasn't a lot of biblical exegesis in these popular books on, on Christian manhood. Instead, they looked to Hollywood heroes. They looked to Mel Gibson's William Wallace in the movie Braveheart. That was a huge favorite. They looked to mythical warriors and soldiers and cowboys and you know, Douglas MacArthur and George Patton. And John Wayne just kept popping up as this kind of icon of Christian manhood, which was very surprising because it, John Wayne was not an evangelical. He did not live a particularly moral lifestyle, but uh, on screen, 
he had come to represent this kind of quote unquote traditional iconic American masculinity where, you know, the good guys are going to beat the bad guys and, you know, violence as needed, uh, but uh, a kind of redemptive violence. And he was the, the iconic American hero. And increasingly over the course of his, his life and his legacy had come to us stand for something that had been lost, this kind of rugged, tough masculinity that um, was kind of nostalgic. It was, again, it had been eroded by feminism, by liberalism, and even Christians bore some of that blame. And so he became the symbol of what, what could be recovered. And he was a symbol for Christians, but also for secular conservatives. And I think that's an important motif of this book as well, that uh, this rugged masculinity links conservative evangelicals with secular conservatives around this cultural identity. And that's why I think John Wayne is in many ways the, the kind of perfect icon, because he does both. Now you understand. Anything goes wrong, anything at all. Your fault, my fault, nobody's fault. It don't matter. I'm going to blow your head off. It's as simple as that. Well, that's John Wayne, and this is Life and Faith, and we're in our second week talking about the U.S. election. Now, if John Wayne is your guy, then it begs the question, would Jesus be manly enough for evangelical Christians? So, I mean, it depends which Jesus, right? And so arguably, and this is kind of the subtitle, the corrupted a faith part of my subtitle, arguably the Jesus of the Gospels is not this kind of John Wayne figure, right? Uh, so he will tell his followers to turn the other cheek, love your neighbors as yourself, uh, love your enemies. And of course, the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These are not the makings of a muscular, right, militant masculinity. But what happens is that uh, evangelicals start to remake Jesus himself in the image of this kind of militant manhood so that Jesus becomes the warrior Christ and and he's going to slay his enemies and 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 so uh, they actually change the Jesus of the Gospels to fit this ideal and in doing so I argue change Christianity itself. There's a popular narrative that many white evangelicals voted for Trump in spite of who he was. And some of our interviewees in these two episodes have felt that. But Kristen doesn't buy it. I do very much push back against this narrative that suggests that evangelical support for Trump was transactional, you know, that they are holding their noses, cannot stomach the man, but they're going to vote for him so they get those court appointments or, you know, or so they have their religious liberty protected or, or you know, fill in the blank. Um and instead, what I came to understand was that if you understand this long tradition of militant Christian masculinity that props up men as protectors and um, protectors of women and children, protectors of the church and protectors of the nation. And they have long uh, written about how and preached about how God has filled men with testosterone and God made men aggressive so that they can they can fulfill their roles as protectors. And, um, and once you understand that, then it's not this utter and total betrayal of all evangelical values. It's not this betrayal of family values, evangelicalism. In many ways, Trump is a fulfillment 
of this view of rugged, tough, masculine protector. And just like John Wayne, uh, he could do so. He could fit this bill so well precisely because he hadn't been formed by traditional Christian virtues, right? He hadn't been inhibited like so many Christian men were with gentleness, kindness, you know, self-control. And for that reason, he was especially well-equipped to fight the battles that needed to be fought in this moment. Now, according to Kristen, it's not necessarily a contradiction to want a leader who's not formed by Christian virtues. Well, I think that those values are deemed appropriate in their place, uh, but not necessarily um, to be exhibited by a, a strong masculine leader. And they'll say things like, in the trenches, you don't want tenderness. And meaning in the trenches, well, what are the trenches? The culture wars, yes, but also after 9-11, the war on terror. And that really amps up this, this militancy. And that's when you see a real rejection in white evangelical circles of the tenderness, of the kindness. Not altogether. Those are great virtues for women. And there is a place for those virtues in the church. But for our leaders who need to fight <laughs> these real battles, right? those can get in the way. And so we do need men who are uninhibited. Un, uh, you know, wussified, who can, who can fight the battles that need to be fought. Talk of battles, of the trenches, of yes to militancy and no to tenderness. This language is saturated with not only aggression, but insecurity, maybe even fear. Here's Kristen again. Oh, there absolutely is. Um, and, and in fact, that was really one of the, the uh, predominant narratives explaining white evangelical support for Trump in 2016. It was that they were so afraid. They were afraid of losing their religious freedom. They were afraid of, uh, you know, this their own demographic decline. They were afraid that white Christians were going to become the minority in America. Um, so many fears. And there is truth to that. Individual evangelicals are very afraid, have been very afraid. But my historical research um, showed me that, um, or, or led me to question, what comes first? Is it is it a fear that leads to militancy, or does militancy, in fact, require fear? And and what I saw is in individual cases, uh, uh, such as Jerry Falwell Sr.'s Thomas Road Baptist Church, Mark Driscoll's Mars Hill Church, um, it was it was frequently the opposite. It was the the strong leader who would stoke fear in the hearts of his followers in order that they felt threatened, that they felt under siege, and that they had to come to him, look to him for their protection. And you can just see how this operated at the local level. And then it clicked for me that that was also what we were seeing at the national level. You might have noticed Kristen's work singles out white evangelicals in particular. I asked her, can you separate race from religion or are they a package deal, at least in the US right now? Uh, for me, they are fused together. Uh, the reason why I, I find it very difficult to separate, in fact, I, I, I don't want to try to separate the two, is as a cultural historian, understanding evangelicalism as a kind of lived religion and as, um, as a tradition that um, is embodied right, by people in churches historically. And when you look at evangelical churches in the United States, with just a few exceptions, these are largely racially segregated communities. There is not a lot of interaction across the racial divide in American Christianity and in American evangelicalism. Earlier, Kristen suggested that white evangelicals feared their demographic decline, and that this at least partly motivated their support for Donald Trump. 
Here's what Lisa Sharon Harper had to say about that. Lisa is an activist, author, speaker, and the founder and president of Freedom Road, a consultancy that trains churches in racial justice. For years, she worked with Sojourners, a Christian social justice magazine. PRRI, Public Religion Research Institute, um, did a poll in 2018 with The Atlantic that asked people of all stripes across the country a series of questions. And the last two questions in their, in their poll were incredibly revealing. The first one was, do you long for the 1950s? Do you long, right? Yeah. My answer to that is hell no, right? So 1950s, that's, that's when, that's when um, Rosa Parks first saw what sat on that bus and we had to walk for a whole year in, uh, in Alabama, Montgomery. 1950s, that's, that's when Brown v. Board happened and when the backlash to Brown v. Board happened. That's when bombings of churches happened, right? They wanted the 1950s again. The second, but everybody else, everybody else, also, except for people of color, every other white group also longed for the 1950s. So just know it's not just white evangelicals. It's, it's, it's the power of whiteness in America. It's the myth of whiteness in America. So that second question asked, will America be better off when America becomes a majority people of color country and therefore run by people of color? And the only people, the only people who said no were white evangelicals and Republicans. And white evangelicals had a stronger response to that than even Republicans. Hello. So that tells you something. Well, this is hard to hear, and it's not a great look by any stretch. Now, race does play an outsized role in all of this. And of course, that comes from a very complicated backstory in the US, a backstory that's unfolded for over 400 years. But even if it is hard to hear, it's worth listening to. Here's Amy Black. We sometimes talk about the phrase, someone having a prophetic voice, the idea of being outside of a system far enough that you can see the problems within a system, speak to those problems prophetically from your faith in a way that can inform and perhaps lead to social change. Uh, just this morning, I was reading Martin Luther King Jr. with my students, and there's someone who we think of in the United States who had truly a prophetic voice who spoke into serious racial problems in the United States from his faith because he was distanced from power. He was able to see the problems and he was also able to be a part of a really significant solution. Amy is tapping into a long biblical tradition. Here's Andy Crouch to explain. This is actually one of the most striking and distinctive things about really the, the Hebrew Bible, that uh, alongside the king, God calls the prophet. And the king comes from the kingly line. Uh, and, the, you know, in, in ancient Israel, the line of David eventually is established. But the prophet can come from anywhere. You know, it can come from the most obscure background. The prophet himself or herself can feel very unqualified to be a prophet, <laughs> uh, but nonetheless speaks truth. It's not always comfortable having prophets around, but you absolutely want them in the room. We had the prophets uh, in the era of, of uh, legal slavery in the United States. We had the abolitionists who were very uncomfortable people to be around, not very good at making friends, not actually very good at a political resolution to slavery. That had to be undertaken by other people. Abraham Lincoln was not a prophet. Uh, he was uh, kind of a masterful leader and consensus builder. But without those abolitionist prophets uh, raising the alarm and often in, in very inflammatory ways reframing the debate, 
there wouldn't have been room politically to reshape. And uh, so we, we have those in our midst now, and we probably need more of them than we'd like to admit. Here's Lisa Sharon Harper again. By the way, I suspect she's very good at making friends. Because we are Black women, we live in the intersection of two of the major identities that have been identified to be on the bottom rung of the human hierarchy of belonging, womanness and Blackness. And in this time and space, because of the fact that we live in that space, we have wisdom to speak to the world in this very time. We know what's going on because we have lived in this space. We have experienced the brutality of sexual violence as a weapon of war and enslavement. We have experienced forced hysterectomies. We have experienced the subjugation by our own men who are trying to achieve some level of, of humanhood, personhood, humanity, um, recognition of their humanity rather in this white patriarchal world, right? So because we live in that space, we actually, it's been recognized and seen in, these, in the United States. People are looking to people of African descent who are women to lead in these times. So in that way, because we have op occupied that bottom rung, we are leading, we are, tr we are trusted voices. Whatever you think of what Lisa Sharon Harper has to say, there is a prophetic ring about her. For the record, she identifies as an evangelical, according to the Bebbington definition that Amy Black outlined earlier, but she's long wrestled with doing so, given the partisanship the term implies. And she's also struggled with the way that the church has dealt with questions of justice. The people that I grew up with in, in evangelicalism who were never, ever taught, never mentored in or taught how to or that that the scripture has anything to say about politics the scripture has anything to say about ethics the word ethics was never mentioned so it was only about my relationship with jesus and being a good person what i found in my exploration of of the the biblical concept of shalom which led me to write my last book the very good gospel is that actually the, the understanding of, of the very good news is actually about ethics. It's actually about the reality that God wants the image of God to thrive all over the earth. And so it matters how we treat each other. It matters how we, um, how we legislate. It matters the policies that we, we say we want or we don't because they are going to determine the lives and the capacity to flourish for millions. In Lisa's experience, evangelicalism has not engaged with what she sees as a critical aspect of the Bible's accounts of Jesus's life, that the texts address themselves to a subjugated and colonized people. And this failure, she says, obscures vital matters that bear on the experience of people of color today in and out of the church. If you understand Jesus as having come simply to die and pay the penalty for my sins so that I can go to heaven, then you are not understanding Jesus. You haven't understood his story or his people's story 
or his words, you miss what it's saying. You miss the political reality that these people who the writers were writing about were living in, that they were living in terror of a colonizing, the largest, most fearsome colonizing force on the planet at the time. If you read this, this brown colonized text in marble halls or in some villa, you're going to miss this. You're missing it. You're going to miss it. Now, not all evangelicals would sign up to the way Lisa reads the Bible, but the reckoning over racial injustice in the U.S. this year suggests that many within the church will be grappling with issues of race and power. For Lisa, the outcome of the election, either way, will force another reckoning, but this time within evangelicalism itself. In America, and I think across the world, we are in a time of revelation. We're, we're in a period of sifting. But this is a time where we are being able to see clearly where somebody stands based on what they do, not just what they say, based on how they vote, because our votes are a manifestation of what we believe about God, what we believe about the other, what we believe about the earth, and what we believe about ourselves. So what we have seen, what has become manifest, that was really hidden before 2016, is the white nationalism of white evangelicals. That has become clear, even to them. So I think that there's a reckoning that is happening. In the words of Brene Brown, there's a reckoning. And reckoning is opportunity. Reckoning brings the opportunity for repentance. Whereas all of the hiding in the darkness, all of the obfuscation, all of the, um, the implicit biases that were not made explicit, that makes it much harder for a person of color who knows it's all there because we interact with it. It makes it much harder to name it and much harder for people of European descent to see it and own it for themselves. But we are in a time of revelation, and that is good news. As we bring our coverage of the U.S. election to a close, we return to a theme we spoke about briefly in our last episode, power. Earlier, Kristen Cabest-Dumay spoke of the fear and insecurity she detected among white evangelicals looking for a strongman in Donald Trump. But she says that a more marginal status is not necessarily something to fear. Well, I think that, um, you know, being on the margins is historically a very good thing for, for the Christian church. And that's that's often where the gospel can flourish. So I don't think it needs to be, uh, you know, something to fear at all. Um, but I think that that's, that's this nostalgia, right? This nostalgia for a time when real or not, uh, the perception was that, that Christians and, and white evangelicals had more power. And, you know, it was power to do good in their minds. It was power to make America, you know, a Christian nation, to keep America a Christian nation, to defend Christian America. And so they have all sorts of justifications for holding that power and exerting that power. Um, but in order to maintain that power, right, it, it can require coercion. Um, and it can, in effect, um, change, change the faith itself, which, you know, as I understand, uh, understand Christianity as a person of faith, 
myself, uh, at the heart of kind of gospel teachings is, is a sense of giving up power, of divesting of power, of not claiming power over others, but of this kind of radical countercultural move of, of divestment of power. And so, uh, yes, I think that there's, there's not reason to fear. There's not reason to fear the other, um, to fear your neighbors. And um, in fact, there is there is grace and truth outside of your own circles and um, your own communities. And I think that, um, frankly, American Christianity would thrive um, by rather than putting up boundaries and seeking to protect and defend, um, just just opening their arms and 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 taking down walls and divisions. For Andy Crouch, the heart of the Christian story suggests that being emptied of power might paradoxically, still accomplish great good. The uniquely Christian perspective is that we believe the most beneficial event in history was the brutal execution of a single person uh, by crucifixion, which was the specific means that the Roman state used to mark out its political enemies and signal that they were of null influence and value and uh, that the, the possibility of their path was, was ended. And in the case of Jesus, whatever you think of the claims of his followers that he was raised from the dead, the empirical reality is that a movement was set in motion around AD 30 that, that as an undercurrent initially for a couple of centuries as an almost invisible reality started to reshape the social relations of the Roman world and to dignify those who were seen as having no, not even personhood, not even legally admitted as persons, treated as things if they were slaves, and started to call them brothers and sisters and call them members of a common family. This then changed the imagination from the inside out of the Roman world. <laughs> and all that is just inescapable history. And, and though the resurrection, of course, uh, it's a very high standard of proof to believe that that happened. I believe it happened. I understand why people doubt the resurrection. What you cannot doubt is that at, at the hinge of history, uh, especially in the West, but in a way that spread to our whole world, something changed. And it happened when someone was intentionally, brutally deprived of power, agency, voice, and life by the state. So ultimately, we do not have to fear this and um, we don't seek it and it is not good when it happens, I don't think. I don't think it will be good for my country if we suppress uh, people who hold Orthodox Christian convictions as part of our common life. Uh, but if it happens, it's not the end of the story. That's what Christians believe. You've been listening to Life and Faith from CPX with me, Simon Smart, and Justine Toe. A big thank you to all our experts who gave us their time to share some thoughts about the US election. Professor Kristen Kobes Dumay, Professor of History at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the author of Jesus and John Wayne How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. We also want to thank Lisa Sharon Harper, speaker, activist, the founder and president of Freedom Road, and the author of The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. And thanks also to Amy Black, Professor of Political Science at Wheaton College in Illinois and the author of many books on religion and politics, her most recent being Honouring God in Red or Blue, Approaching Politics with Humility, Grace and Reason. And also Andy Crouch, speaker and former editor of Christianity Today and the author of Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. We will post links to their work on the show notes for this episode. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, why not pass it on to a friend who might also get something out of it and leave us a rating as well. It helps other people discover our show. Yeah, we are working hard to contribute to a positive conversation about faith and meaning and the things that matter. Go to lifeandfaithpodcast.com to find out more. 